The reading of God's Word this morning comes from Leviticus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 17, and you can find it printed on the insert in your bulletin. Leviticus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, and on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priests shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you praising you for your goodness to us, your people. Father, how we wonder and thank you for how you take care of of your creation and provide for our needs. We simply at this time return to you what you have first given to us and ask that you would use these gifts and these ties and these offerings for your good in this world, that your kingdom would be advanced upon this earth and that the glorious wonders of the good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, as we prepare now to come before your holy word, to hear again of the good news of the gospel, we pray that you would be with us. No matter where we come from this morning, no matter what troubles us or excites us this morning, remind us that together we are all the same. 
all of us are far more broken than we really know. Far more sinful, far more fallen and corrupt than we often give ourselves credit. And so we all stand in need of the very same thing this morning. We need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded again and again that though we are far more broken than we know, because of His person and His work, we are also far more loved, far more accepted, far more approved of than we could have ever dreamed possible. And we pray that this good news would indeed transform your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This summer, we're in a series where we are looking at Old Testament passages. And we're looking at these Old Testament passages to be reminded that every page of the Bible speaks to us of Jesus, that every story in the Bible breathes and whispers the name of Jesus to us. And this morning, we're looking at the first chapter of Leviticus that was read just a little bit bit ago. Um, And if we could be honest for a second, um, a lot of, uh, I guess, well-intentioned plans probably to read through the Bible have uh, probably died in the book of Leviticus. Um, You know, Genesis and Exodus, and, you know, Exodus gets a little hard at the end, but okay, you make it through, and then you get to Leviticus. And um, here we enter into a world of ceremony, of ritual, right, of of sacrifice. And it's all just absolutely foreign to us and to our experience. But I want you to think with me this morning about how extremely powerful, how extremely powerful and formative ritual and ceremony and these actions performed here actually are. Here's the uh, governing principle I want you to understand this morning. It's that ritual or that Actions, right? Actions like the kind described for us in Leviticus chapter 1, they have the power to convey and write truth deeper on our hearts than even mere adjectives could ever do, right? And let me try to explain because, you know, as Americans, we have our own rituals too. For our family, it does not feel like Christmas without getting out a tree and decorating that Christmas tree, right? The weekend after Thanksgiving for my family, uh, and I know it's early for some of y'all, but that weekend after Thanksgiving, we always make this huge deal about we're going to go get a tree and we're going to bring it back and we're going to set it up and we're going to trim it and we're going to decorate it. I mean, that's Christmas. It feels like Christmas through the ritual, you know. Thanksgiving, you know, it doesn't feel like Thanksgiving to me without a turkey and stuffing and sweet potato casserole. I don't even really like sweet potato casserole, to be honest. But it's got to be on the table. Or it doesn't feel like Thanksgiving to me, right? Uh, you, you know, it's more than just a meal, right? It, it's it tr- The actions, it triggers a season. And it triggers the memory through the activity. You know, a kid's birthday party without a birthday cake or candles? What in the world is that? Don't do that, parents. Um fall in the southeast it doesn't feel like fall without college football on saturdays right amen um we you know we i guess we could go on but my point is that the rituals and the activities that we participate in year after year 
they speak to us not through words, but through activity. Right? They, they tell a story in actions, not words. And they communicate truth deep in our hearts, in our experience. A scholar on the book of Leviticus, his name is Ephraim Radner, and he writes this. Hence, the rules of Leviticus come down to an elaborate training exercise that imposed over centuries hones a people's focus in form and experience on the one God of the world. An elaborate exercise, right, repeated over and over that writes truth deeply on the heart. Actions sometimes speak louder, right, and demonstrate truth more deeply than mere adjectives could ever do. And here it's here in Leviticus chapter 1. It's actions, not adjectives, that speak to us about who we are and who God is. So here we are in Leviticus 1, hearing about the ritual of the burnt offering. And I want you to see from this scene and from the actions that are described here, I want you to see three things in this chapter. I want you to see the presence for which you were made. I want you to see the holiness that is demanded. And I want you to see the aroma that pleases. First, the presence for which you were made. Very simple. I want you to see in Leviticus 1 that Leviticus 1 is really telling you that you were made. You were designed for the presence of God and nothing else will do. St. Augustine, he famously wrote in a prayer, Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. He is saying that without the presence of God in our lives, we are reduced to grasping, straining, and restless creatures. Restlessly grasping for value and for significance and for importance, right? And meaning... We're grasping for it in anything and everything we can get our hands on. And our hearts stay restless until we get into the presence of the one who made us for himself. But how do you see this in Leviticus chapter 1? See, in verse 1 we read, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. The voice of God came from this specific location, the tent of meeting. But see, almost every English translation leaves out a little Hebrew word in that sentence. And that Hebrew word is called the vav. And um, the vav is, it acts like a conjunction when it's translated into English. It's like the word and or then, right? So literally, verse 1 says, Then the Lord God called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. See, the author wants you to see that everything in Leviticus is directly connected to the story that just came before it in the book of Exodus, right? And if you stay with me for about two minutes, I'll I'll pull this together. But the last few chapters of Exodus, they're all about instructions for building this tent of meeting, or what we we call often the tabernacle, right? And, And when the building was completed, the very last, the very last verses of Exodus say this, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire by night in sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And with that, the book of Exodus ends. And then you get verse 1 of Leviticus. Then the Lord God called to Moses from the tent of meeting. You see, what they had at the tent of meeting where God spoke from and where all these people would come together to worship and to offer their sacrifice, what they had there in that, sp- in that place was the visible presence of God, a cloud by day and fire by night. And it, w- it, you know, it was located in the exact center of the camp of Israel so that everyone every day could see it this cloud, this fire, reminding them that they were made to be in the presence of God. I mean, every morning you woke up and climbed out of your tent, you would see this cloud reminding you that God is here in our midst. Every night when you went to sleep, you would look that direction and you would see this glow of fire that came from the tabernacle reminding you that God is in the middle of His people. Restless and grasping, right, Uh, outside of the presence of God, we are trying to pull anything and everything into the middle of our lives, thinking that if we could, you know, accumulate enough power, if we could gain enough control, right, if we could get enough approval and enough financial means, enough emotional connection, or even achieve some standard of morality, we think if we could just get it and pull it into the center of our being, it would give us an identity, Right. Something our lives could revolve around. But we are grasp. We are always grasping at things that are far too small, far too fragile, far too dependent upon circumstance to ever give us real deep rest. It's not what we were made for. We were made to be in the presence of God. That is the only thing that is big enough and solid enough to satisfy our restless hearts. So much so that if you read through the story of Israel in the Old Testament, you know that the real terror that faced these people was that one day because of their sin, this glory cloud would one day pick up and leave. And they would be left outside of God's presence. And we don't have time, but that actually is what happens. And it gets described for us by Ezekiel. In his book, the glory cloud picked up and left. And without God's presence in the center, everything unravels and comes undone and falls apart. There's no center to hold, right? Nothing else can hold life. Nothing else can hold you together. Because at the most fundamental level, the one thing you are made for is the presence of God. And only there can you find real rest. I've told this story a number of times. Um, but I, it was a friend of mine who was shopping in Walmart. And as he was shopping, he heard the shrill cry and screams of this child. Right. Which, by the way, is not unusual if you've been to Walmart um, on a Saturday morning or something. Um, Walmart on a Saturday morning would be an incredibly effective abstinence program, I think. Um, 
You know, my, my friend, um, he hears these screams and these shrills, right? And he turned the corner expecting to find what you and I would probably expect to find in that same scenario. Um, a child who wanted a particular toy and was throwing a fit because his mother or father wouldn't, wouldn't let them have it. But he came around the corner and looked down this aisle, and there he just he saw this child who was completely alone, somehow got separated from his parents. And he was screaming, and he was crying, because he was lost, and he was panicked. And so my friend's standing there wondering what he should do about this particular situation, right? But thankfully, the mother comes running around the other corner of the aisle, and she scoops this child up into her arms. And all of a sudden, the crying stopped and the screaming stopped. And what he told me was very interesting. He said, within 30 seconds of that child being scooped up, he went from screams of terror to in 30 seconds, not just to being quiet, but to being fast and sound asleep in his mother's arms. Look, every day, In real-life tangible expression, through real-life experience and activity, this truth was etched into the people's hearts. You are made for the presence of God. Only in His presence can you find the deep rest you were made for. Blaise Pascal, right, the mathematician, philosopher, theologian, he wrote in his work, Thoughts. And this is what he wrote. He wrote, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness, he says this, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This life he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help that he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. And then this, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and unchangeable object, in other words, by God himself. Take time and let that sink in. Some of you know exactly what Pascal wrote about there. I definitely know what he wrote about. I mean, the career you thought would, you were hoping would bring you fulfillment, right? The family you desperately wanted to give your life meaning or stability, right? The spouse you wanted and had to have because somehow they were, to have that spouse would complete you and erase the emptiness in your life, the praise of others, the safety, the comfort you long for to make you whole. It's like dropping pennies into an infinite abyss. Too fragile and too small. It will never fill you and make you whole. Only the infinite object, the infinite unchangeable object, God himself is large enough, solid enough to fill that abyss. It's what you and I were made for. And the Israelites, they had that mapped onto their experience in living color at the tabernacle. Now, second, we need to move on in this next point to consider the holiness that is demanded. Look, look, to have God's presence, to be in God's presence, it it also um, is to be in his presence is is to be forced, I think, to deal with his absolute holiness. And here you see that God's holiness, it is costly, it's necessary, a a sacrifice is necessary, and His holiness is about absolute purity. You know, the book of Leviticus, it's it's like a series of manuals 
is what the book of Leviticus is. A series of manuals or a directory for how to conduct life in the presence of God. And in Leviticus 1, you have the manual for the burnt offering. And it describes the burnt offering of three different kinds of animals. We read through it earlier. But all the scholars really agree that that the different animals they were offered in reference to a, a, a person's wealth and position in that society so that turtle doves or pigeons being offered would hurt just as much would cost just as much to the poor as a bull would to the more well-off. God wants you to know that His holiness is always costly. Look, I'm guessing that two or three times a year, maybe, my family will splurge and we'll get steaks and we'll grill out. Right? We'll, we'll get these center-cut fillets with... You know, I make up this gorgonzola scallion butter to go on top of it. Um, I might need a minute. But, you know, it, it's, um, it's so good two or three times a year. But my point is that we don't do it often because just those steaks are so expensive. If a couple of steaks are expensive, how costly would it be to you to buy an entire cow and, and, and to kill it? And watch it all go up in smoke. I mean, add to this that Israel is this nomadic tribe, right? And the only real currency, the only real thing of value, significant value, was livestock. I mean, they didn't just know with their minds that holiness was costly. They felt it deep in their bones. It was real. The actions wrote the story deeper than mere adjectives could. But then, as every scholar points out, there are no specific sins for which these burnt offerings in Leviticus 1 are made, right? I mean, in other parts of Leviticus, you have very detailed prescriptions for the sacrifices that you're to make for specific sins in your life. But these are just general. If you look at the end of verse, thir- verse 3, it says, He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent, tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. You see, even when there is no specific sin... To be accepted before the Lord, a costly sacrifice was required. And I know it's hard for us to swallow, but I think we all have a sense of this in us, right? Even when there is no specific sin in view in our lives, there is something that is not quite right about humanity. Just turn on Fox News or CNN News or whatever you watch. We know instinctively that even at our best, We are broken. Even at our best, we're a shadow of what we were meant to be. The actions, they spoke so loudly and clearly, didn't they? They felt it every time they came to the tabernacle. The holiness of God is at complete odds with even the very best you and I have to offer because we are broken through and through. Real death and real blood have to cover you to find acceptance in God's presence, holy presence. But then you also look and see how detailed the prescriptions are for these these sacrifices, right? A male without blemish. Lay your hand upon the animal. Kill or slaughter or slit the animal's throat. And this is how you sprinkle the blood on the altar. And then you cut and arrange the pieces just so. And then you clean and wash the, the feet and the entrails, right? And then you burn it up in this ash heap. You know, you read on through Leviticus and attention is given to every, every minute detail, And, you know, it's really a shame that some people look at the book of Leviticus and just say, 
Well, these sacrifices, they were just kind of a visual aid for the people of Israel before Jesus came. But you know that doesn't do it justice here. It doesn't do it justice because when you get to chapter 10, there's a story of two men, Nadab and Abihu, who didn't follow the detailed prescriptions that were required. And we're told that immediately fire came down and consumed them. See, here's what I'm saying. These were more than illustrations, right? People either lived or died based on if they got the prescriptions right. This was serious business. God's holy presence means that absolute purity is required. A male without blemish. They didn't just know holiness demanded absolute purity. They felt it deep in their bones. They knew people who died when they didn't pay attention to the purity God's presence demanded. This past week, I was having lunch with some guys, and I made the mistake of saying um, saying to this group of guys, you know, I'm scared of heights, but, um, but I think I might be able to parachute. You know, it's something about you get that high... And it's just unreal, the height, you know, and uh, I, I really I don't know how we men find ourselves in these conversations, but we do sometimes. And um, it was a big, big mistake for me to say that because one of the guys there had been skydiving a number of times and he went on to explain in great detail what you needed to do in order to parachute out of a plane and he how you had to get your body and just the right position and put your hands just so. And if you moved this one hand this way, you would start to barrel roll and never be able to come out of it. And how you had to count to yourselves and yourself and check your meters and all this kind of stuff and get your hand in position to pull the cord. All the, There's more, I'm sure. But in that moment, <laughs> my fantasy was completely ruined, right? Uh, my hypothetical confidence that I had a moment ago was just shattered. Um, Because nowhere in there did he say you could just jump out and scream like a little girl and the parachute would come out and you'd be fine. Um, What came across to me was more something like, if you mess up, gravity wins and you die. Um, That's serious. Um, You know, in vivid action, all these sacrifices were saying about... They were saying that absolute holiness is demanded. It's serious business, and it is meant to shatter your hypothetical confidence. And I think you know what I'm talking about. All those times you go or think to yourself, well, at least I'm not like those other people. You know, but look how very conservative and Republican or how progressive I am, you know, and how I can win all these theological arguments and how we educate our children the right way. Um, You know, and even if you think about those things, and there are many other things that we look to and place our hypothetical confidence in, even if you snicker about those things, you have to be very careful because it's actually very easy to become self-righteous about not being self-righteous. I mean, this is everywhere in our lives is what I'm trying to say. The holiness here in, in visual form, it shatters your confidence. Only real, costly, pure death can make you acceptable on even your very best day. Now, listen, all of this stuff, it, it begins to create a real tension in your life if you're listening. You are made for the presence of God. Nothing else will ever satisfy you. Outside of that. But see, you in and of yourself are totally unfit for the presence of God. 
Your heart longs for the presence of God, but the holy presence of God, it is also a very, very dangerous thing. You see that in Leviticus chapter 1, all the death. And so we turn to these sacrifices lastly to see that there's something in them, in these sacrifices, that pleases God. After each sacrifice, as we read through the passage, it gets a little monotonous because it's over and over. But after each sacrifice is described in detail, we're told that the burnt offering, a food offering, is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's the last point, I know you're tired, but if you hang in there and do your best, just I want you to imagine the actions here that speak louder than mere adjectives. A man desiring acceptance before the Lord's presence had to go get an animal. And let's take the bull, right? But not just any bull of his herd would do. It had to be the best of the best, right? A male without any defect or blemish. And he took that bull to the tabernacle and he laid his hand on the head of that animal. You know, what's all that about? It was symbolism, right? He was saying at the tabernacle... This bull is going to get what I deserve in the presence of the holy God. And then you read in verse 4 this. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And the word for kill there means slaughter. And technically, it meant to slaughter the animal by slitting its throat. And it's a little hard to follow with the pronouns in the English. But the he in that verse is not the priest. The he, the he is the man that brought that bull in, right? If you were an ordinary Israelite at this time, that would have been you. You would have come with this bull, and it would have been your responsibility to take a knife to that huge animal and slit its throat and kill it. The blood of that animal was then collected, right, and thrown against the sides of the altar. And then the animal was cut into pieces and arranged on the fire and the entrails and the feet had to be cleansed. And every bit of that animal was put on the altar, totally consumed by fire and reduced to ashes. See, can you just for a moment imagine what all of that felt like? I mean, your muscles tense. Right, your sweat dripping from your head and from your body as you struggled with that animal to put it to death with a knife? I, I, I mean, sawing through muscle and tendon and bone to cut it into pieces? How hard work that is? I mean, can you imagine what the tabernacle looked like and smelt like over time? Matted blood and fur baked by the desert sun? The bugs and the flies, you know, that would swarm there. It was a dirty place. It was blood and guts and death there. And the smell, I mean, on that fire, meat was consumed, right? But also fur and hooves. I mean, when you came to offer sacrifice, every one of your senses was about to be assaulted in a very real way. That truth gets etched into your heart that, that says, I am made for God's presence. But just look at the demands of his holiness. Smell the demands of his holiness. Feel the demands of his holiness. The sights, the sounds, the smell of it all. And then we're told in verse 9 and verse 13 
in verse 17, that this is a pleasing aroma to God. To you and me, that smell would have been gross. It would have been tough to handle. But to God, it was pleasing. Why? Because it was the aroma, not just, a, not, not just of the bull or whatever it was. It was the aroma of substitution. The Bible tells the story of a holy God's love for a broken, fallen people. So don't you see only a substitute that can satisfy the demands of God, both God's holiness and his love would make you fit to be in his presence. In the New Testament, when John wrote his gospel, he started his gospel by saying, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And some of you know that he takes the Greek word for tabernacle there. But we're talking about tent of meeting. And he turns it into a verb in the Greek. It's the word we often translate dwelt. And so what John is actually saying is that Jesus came, he became flesh, and he tabernacled among us. The very presence of God that we were made for came to us. And then at the very end of John's gospel, which say at John's gospel, when Jesus is on the cross, and just before he dies, he screamed out something. He screamed out, it is finished. Leviticus 6, you know, if you were to look at Leviticus 6, it, it tells us there that this Old Testament burnt offering that we're talking about here, it was to never be extinguished. It was going, the fire was going all the time. This is what it says. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. It was never, ever finished in the Old Testament. But Jesus on the cross was saying to us, I am the ultimate burnt offering. I went into the fire of justice in your place and was consumed totally. In me, the ultimate perfect sacrifice, it is finished. It, it, he's saying, if you trust in me, you get the very thing you were made for. You get the access, you get taken into the very presence of God at the cross. The aroma of sub substitution, it went up and was pleasing to the Lord in your place. In just a moment, we're going to be coming before the Lord's table celebrating communion together. And in this Lord's table, we are reminded that sometimes actions speak louder than mere adjectives. We come to this Lord's table and our senses are assaulted. Right? Bread that represents Jesus' body. Wine that represents His blood. We see it with our eyes. We smell it. We touch it. We handle it. We taste it. But look, when we come to this table, we don't make sacrifice. In this table, we are reminded that the sacrifice was made and it is finished. You read that quote on the front of your bulletin when you have a chance. Because of Jesus, never again do you have to fear or I have to fear. Have I done it right? Have I believed sincerely enough or well enough? Because the only thing that matters 
is, was it the right lamb? The lamb without blemish who could take away your sin. And the gospel says, yes, Jesus was the right lamb. And it is finished. And friends, when this truth, when it sinks into your heart, not just intellectually, but into your experience, when you know deep in your bones that Jesus was consumed for you, you have to realize what that does. It sets you free. It sets you free to be what you were made to be. A child basking in the pleasing smile of his father. And that's the only thing big enough and solid enough to quiet your restless hearts. You see, when you see the costliness of God's holy love upon the cross for you, it really does shatter all of your hypothetical confidence. Because no matter who you are or what you have done or where you have been, you never come into God's presence by being right enough. And here's the other thing. You can never forfeit his presence by being too wrong. Because the only way to come is through grace. And that produces real humility in your lives. But listen, it's not just about humility. This grace that we are talking about, it brings you all the way in, all the way into God's smile through the pleasing aroma of perfect substitution. And to know and experience that you have God's smile upon you forever, it fills you with real confidence. Nothing will or ever can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'm telling you, my friends, that when you get that into your bones, it's a game changer when it sinks in. And it'll change you from the inside out. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we realize this morning from your word, that we were made for your presence and nothing else can satisfy our restless hearts. We recognize and realize through your word what your holiness actually demands, how costly, how necessary, how the purity that your holy holiness demands. And Father, we come now Rejoicing to know that perfect satisfaction was made. The ultimate substitute, He came. God in the flesh came to take the curse upon Himself that we might go free. That in the Gospel, we might experience a humility that is shot through with confidence because of what Jesus has done for us in our place. Father, we pray that we would see and taste and smell that our senses, even now as we come to the Lord's table, would be assaulted with this good news. That this would be our experience, not just information to us. And we would rejoice and our lives would be changed from the inside out by your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.